All right. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, please, chapter 6. And I'll do the same. I'm already there. Pretty close. Chapter 11 is close. We won't be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 until probably January. I'm not kidding. That's actually, like, I have it scheduled out. Like, I'm serious. We'll be in 1 Corinthians in January. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, though, is where we'll be this morning. Starting in verse 1, uh, I'll read through verse 11. It says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Well, didn't you? No. All right, we'll get to that. Don't worry. How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgment concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But such and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Jesus, we thank you for your washing, for your sanctifying, for your justifying, for your spirit that you give us. We thank you that you have called us to uh, a law of liberty, a higher law. You've called us to a community of saints, uh, a church, to the family of God, where we can, we can go to those that you've entrusted with wisdom rather than anywhere else. We thank you, Lord, that you, Jesus Christ, are the shepherd of the church. And we thank you that you have your children, your sheep, you have their best interest in mind. Bless our study, bless the, the preaching of your word today, let the seed of your word sink into hearts and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the end of this passage, you know where it gets good, verse 11, explains the beginning of the passage about suing the person next to you at church. <laughs> especially the last half of the last sentence that we just read. It says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. 
He uses the term justified a lot. Paul ta- this is Pauline language, but that is a legal term, so it fits here when he's talking to people who are misusing their legal rights. Paul is correcting horizontal behavior between believers by reminding them of the vertical relationship that they have with a good and righteous judge. The Corinthians were fighting with each other, and Paul is correcting them for this, but the theological argument against their injustice is made from the place of their justification. Because God has made friends with his enemies, and by the way, you're one of them, you were one of them, now you can do the same with your enemies, you know, the people you go to church with. Because God has justified the ungodly, now you can forgive them as well. Go back to verse 1, look at the problem, and then we'll, I'll remind you of some of the things chapter 5 uh, said to bring us up to speed. Verse 1 says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So one of the problems was that the members of the church in Corinth, were they had, when they had offended one another, believed the solution to that problem was suing each other. Nothing new under the sun. Now, this chapter is not a creed or doctrine against all legal action. It's not an apologetic against suing, period, full stop. That's not really the fullness of what this chapter is about. That's not Paul's argument. His argument is for the church to take care of its own business and not be an embarrassment to itself by taking fellow members of the church of God to court. Um, In chapter 5, there was a problem with a man who had an illicit relationship with his father's wife. Yeah, you thought you didn't have to talk about that again because we got over chapter 5. Sorry, I'm bringing it right back up. We're going to go right back. Okay, the church didn't see it as a problem, and that was the problem. They didn't deal with it. And so Paul steps in, and he says, throw them out. And we talked about how this kind of toughness, this tough love can be effective in restoring a person who is in unrepentant sin. Allowing sinful behavior was not helping anyone out. And we see in 2 Corinthians that it had this effect and brought an erring child back to reconciliation. Chapter 5 ended with Paul telling them that they, as the church, had a responsibility to keep their house in order. And he clarifies his point by saying, I'm not telling you to judge those who are outside the church. That's none of your business. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. He can handle it. I'm telling you to keep your own house in order. And now in chapter 6, he's dealing with the other side of this issue. Because the church wasn't dealing with problems, two things were happening. First, the chapter 5 issue. There was sin in the church being unaddressed. People were ruining their lives and everyone just pretended that it was fine. Sin was not being corrected. But there were other issues too. There There were people who were offended and wronged or hurt. And the church wasn't dealing with those offenses either. So, because the church was not dealing with itself the offended party took the issue to court. Their, their natural option, the option they had left. So just like there were two different kinds of problems in chapter 5, you know, and two different kinds of, of sinners. Remember in chapter 5, there was the problem, the people who were in that relationship. And then there was the problem that the problem revealed, which was that the church really didn't care about sin at all. Chapter 6 reveals layers as well, at least three of them. There's whatever problem happened when one person wronged another. We don't know what that issue was. We don't know what the argument was about, but there was a problem. Otherwise, this chapter wouldn't have been written. 
So there's the problem of one Christian sinning against another. It happens. It shouldn't, but it does. Next layer, there's the problem that Paul spends most of the time addressing here, which is the willingness of the offended party to take the offender to court. The Corinthians were offensive and easily offended. Both are problematic. Then there's the third problem, that the church simply wasn't in a place that, sol that was um, solving problems. They went to court because they didn't really have another option, because there was not one wise among them who they could sit down with and talk about these issues. The church should have been wise enough and bold enough to address the, prob the personal problems in and amongst its members. The church wasn't in a place where it was making sound judgments, and this is really what chapter 5 is all about. So without the church being in a place to offer godly help or godly conviction or godly correction to conflicting parties or sinning parties, what would the easily offended people, uh, what, what could they do? What are they going to do? They're going to take it to the judge in town. And Paul says, not so fast. This is not right. This was not the right course of action. Now, if you go to Corinth, you can go to the Bema seat that existed when Paul was there, the platform or the judgment seat, that's what the Bema seat is, uh, sat. And this is where those Christians would have gone to sort out their issues. It's not in a courthouse. It's right there in the street, in the marketplace. No anonymity here. So when a Christian, and they knew you were a Christian, because you're not going to the temple anymore, and hopefully your life has changed, you've stepped out of a dark culture into a completely different weird cult called Christianity, okay? And everyone's freaked out about that. But they know you're a Christian. So when you sue another Christian, you would be taking them to this place in the center of the town, right in the open square, and inevitably find yourself in the public eye. It would be humiliating for the church. Now, Paul's main argument is not, please keep this under wraps. It's really embarrassing. That's not his main point. His main argument is that the church ought to be more capable, more capable of judging disputes and handling these kinds of issues than the unregenerate judges of their corrupt city. So read verses 2 and 3. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? I love this. I love the way Paul writes this. He says, Don't you know you're, you're going to judge angels? Come on, everyone knows that, right? Weren't you there? Didn't you watch my, my series on judging angels? You know, 12... 12 points on the angelic penal system, something. I'm sure he gave that sermon series. Angels get parking tickets, and 12 resurrected registered voters need to determine if that charge was legitimate. You know, Paul said, don't you know about this? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? I mean, I guess we do now, don't we? Like, if he hadn't written this, I'm not sure I, I would have come to this conclusion quite so quickly. But let's take these things one at a time. First, judging the world. This is something Jesus told the disciples very clearly. In Luke 22, 29, Jesus tells his friends, he says, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. We believe in a coming kingdom where all this will be made clear, where these things will happen. The world the word judge there can sometimes mean to govern or to rule over, and we see promises of that throughout the parables of Jesus, don't we? Luke 19, 17, in Luke's version of the parable of the talents, Jesus says of a faithful servant, says he said to him, well done, good servant, 
That's what we want to hear, right? Those are familiar words in our mind. Because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. Okay, sounds like you're judging the world, at least part of it. How about 2 Timothy 2.12? Paul writes to Timothy, he says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. Or we could keep going to Revelation 5.10, where the saints in heaven say um, that they have been made, he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Okay, sounds like we're judging the world. Finally, one more from the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. I'll read three through five. It says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. This is the kind of thing that existed within the Christian imagination at this time. And this is what Paul is drawing the minds of the Corinthians to. It wasn't new. It wasn't unique to Paul. It was a promise of Jesus to the apostles that stretches from the gospels through the epistles to Revelation. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The answer, the question is asked as if to imply that the answer is yes. They knew all about that. I'm sure none... Uh, none of us know the exact details about how this is going to pan out, but the general ingredients of the promise are there to be seen. Okay, what about this bit about judging angels? There's a couple ways that you could take this. Now again, to judge could literally mean to pass sentence on, to pronounce a judgment. Now in a way, we, as far as we can tell, angels have already been judged. As best we can figure, there was a war in heaven. Angels fell, the fallen angels we call demons. Jesus encounters some of these demons who beg with Jesus not to sentence them to their ultimate doom. You can read that Matthew 8, 29, they say, have you come to torment us before the time? Indicating that there is a final time where these fallen angels will be judged. In the book of Revelation, Satan, who is a fallen angel, is judged and sentenced. We've already established that the church will reign with the Lord. All of this taken together seems to indicate that the fallen angels the demonic realities against whom we wage our spiritual war will be judged, and we will have a part to play in judging them. Good angels don't need judging, right? It's not like it's a contest, like flying halo contests or something, and you hold up your sign. Ten. Um, the, the good angels don't need judging. It seems like they're, um, doesn't seem like they're messing up anymore, which is nice. Uh, we know that they're, we are fighting a spiritual battle, and we know that in the end we win. We would be surprised, why would we be surprised, excuse me, with the idea that in the end, the defeated foes will be judged and sentenced. Which means, now I don't want you to get a big head about this, and I know I'm crossing a line into speculation here, but I've got the microphone, so. <laughs> isn't it going to feel, isn't it going to feel right and just to sentence the demons who have had a hand in ruining families? in promoting addictions, in tempting you and the ones you love into the behaviors that have made life miserable. Now, make no mistake, we can and do sin just fine without any help from unseen forces, okay? But we also know that there are tempters, there are accusers, there are these spiritual forces of wickedness against whom we do battle, and they are warring against your soul, and we will see them judged. Why is Paul even talking about this? His argument goes like this. He says, you're not able to discern and judge 
over between simple matters. But you will be entrusted with great matters. You've been promised in the Gospels and elsewhere that you will judge big things, and now you can't even do small things. You are going to be expected to judge the world, but you are neglecting to judge within your own small sphere of influence right here between that guy and that guy that aren't getting along. Someone needs to sit down with those guys and figure out why they're not getting along, but you can't do that. And how, how then do you expect to judge 10 cities or whatever? Paul uses the glorious promised future as a point of contrast against their current laziness and foolishness. This is extraordinarily merciful of Paul, especially in this corrective letter. Remember that Paul, in this somewhat scathing letter, calls these people saints. He's already told them, you're the temple of the living God. He says, you, yes, you guys, you're going to judge angels. He has a very high view of the future of these miserable sinners because Paul knows the power of the resurrection. And so instead of saying, you're acting like hell, I guess that's where you're headed. You know, that's not what Paul says. He says, you're going to rule the earth. Why not start now? You're going to rule over angels and demons and on the, you're going to, to judge angels. Why can't you just solve your own arguments? You're going to rule the earth. Start now. And correcting this poor behavior, he's not condemning them at all. Quite the opposite. He's reminding them of their extraordinarily high position within the family of God. But instead of taking that position, they are essentially surrendering their authority to the world. In verse 4, he says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Those least esteemed by the church are apparently the government of Corinth. Now, there may be some subtext there that we're just not picking up because of things they knew about their culture, but the general gist of it is this. In the church, they, there are supposed to be spiritually mature, discerning people. Do you remember what has already been said in 1 Corinthians about worldly wisdom? He spent a couple chapters on this already, right? Remember how he said the wisdom of the world, that's nothing. It's fading away. It's been weighed, measured, and found wanting. And how heavenly wisdom has been shown to be superior in every way. Well, the local government in Corinth wasn't really determining to know Christ and him crucified, right? The, the government in Corinth, there's no way anyone would expect them to have heavenly wisdom in any area. They were operating with a decent worldly wisdom at best. So by going to such rulers, the rulers of Corinth, the Corinthian Christians were going to the world and they were trading heavenly wisdom for worldly, appointing those least esteemed by the church to judge. Verse 5 says, I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not, is it so, sorry, that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brother. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now remember, I, I mentioned three layers to the problem right here, right? Here they are. There's the problem that the brother is fighting against brother. There's an offense. That's a problem. There's the problem that they're taking it to a secular court that does not have a grip on, on heavenly wisdom. That's, that's the second problem. Okay? And then there's the problem in verse 5 that says, and there's no one wise enough to deal with this in your church, apparently. He says, there's not a wise man among them, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. 
And then before we move on, you can notice maybe additional layers of rebuke. You have the words, and that before unbelievers? Indicating the added shame and embarrassment these people were bringing on the church in the eyes of the world by bringing their their argument, which should have been solved within the church, among the heavenly wise among them. Instead, they bring it out literally into the streets. This part about there being no one wise, this rebuke wasn't to the two people fighting, suing each other. This was a rebuke of the whole church. It seemed in the case of the couple in chapter 5 that Paul excommunicated, there was no one willing to correct bad behavior. There was just no one willing to get involved. In chapter 6, it sounds like there was no one capable of mediating between two offending, offended parties. In Paul's next letter to the Corinthians, Paul will tell them that God has given them a ministry of reconciliation. The Corinthians were not walking in that ministry. Of course, this is our opportunity to see if we understand that we have been called to the same ministry. This is our ministry as well. Whenever there's a warning to the church in Scripture, we want to see if the shoe still fits, so to speak. Are there any wise among you? Now, I know that none of you have ever had a serious disagreement with another Christian because you're all too good and holy, but theoretically, just hypothetically, are there any wise among you who would fulfill this ministry of reconciliation? Who would be willing to get involved? The fault in Corinth went both ways. The offended went to court instead of the church. That's on them. They should have, If they didn't go to the church at all, they should have. But the members of the church also let them go out to the court. That's on the rest of them. The church is a place of reconciliation. Christ forgave us and expects us to not only forgive, but to facilitate forgiveness between people. God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ and expects us to enter into his ministry of reconciliation. Since there was no wise counselor for these Christians suing each other, Paul is taking it on himself here to be the counselor. And the counsel he offers is hard. The counsel he offers would probably have been just as offensive then as it is now. The advice Paul gives rubs against all our independent sensibilities. When we read that what Paul has to say to these guys who may be dealing with a genuine wrong, as far as we know, we immediately go straight to the exceptions. Like I can think of a variety of situations to where I don't have to listen to what Paul says next. And I can think of a variety of situations where if you had this verse quoted to you, by one of the wise among you, you would be tempted immediately to find a way to reject it. Look what it says, verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. In Paul's mind, if they held on to their rights to this extent of going to court, they were already wrong. He says it's an utter failure, an utter failure. Can't even redeem that. Just back away. Just slowly back away. We'll try and forget it. Move on. You've already failed in that level. But then Paul says, you know, Paul says you shouldn't sue someone in your church. And the answer he could easily anticipate then was, well, what? look what they did to me, though. Am I supposed to just let them get away with it? And Paul's answer is a resounding yes. 
Now, again, if you're honest about putting yourself in this situation, your mind will come up with a thousand exceptions. And I'm sure many of them are legitimate. And you can, you can see that there was no one wise to judge between them. If there had been, of course, then they would have taken it there. And it wouldn't be just a matter of letting someone get away with it because it would have been brought before the church and the church would have been able to sort out the sinner, the offended party and all those things. But they didn't have that. They're without any mediator. There's no one wise in the church to help them, help them with this. So what should they do? Well, should I just be wronged? Yes. They cheated me. They are committing a crime against me. Yeah, yeah, they are. Should I just let myself be cheated? I, yeah, I think so. That's what Paul says to this group of people. And again, if you're honest about putting yourself in this situation, your mind comes up with all the exceptions, and there are exceptions. We could talk about the times when this advice might not work, when accepting wrong would put others in danger. We could talk about enabling an abuser. We could go on and on. But in this text, Paul doesn't, so we're not going to. Paul's point is too strong to be weakened with hypothetical exceptions. Paul encourages the offended party in this case to accept wrong. He actually tells the person who is bringing litigation against someone in their church and the person who is being sued, you should let yourself be cheated. Paul says that the cost of defending your rights in this scenario are simply too high. The cost of being right is too high. Is Paul saying, just let it go? Again, he, he des described an ideal situation where that's not on the table because there are wise in the church that are able to mediate this situation. But I think he's saying much more than just let it go. By saying accept wrong and let yourself be cheated, that's far beyond just ignoring the problem. But that's the, that's the apostle's advice. And I'm going to assume that there are many of us who would be unwilling to take it at face value. But should we be surprised by this? Should we, should we have the, uh, be surprised that these verses grate against us? And why should the church in Corinth have thought this unreasonable? They were aware of some of the words of Christ, I'm sure. Were they aware of Jesus talking about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving your shirt to the one who stole your coat? In fact, now would probably be a good time to review some of those controversial statements of Jesus, just so Paul doesn't feel alone here. Because I, I think this is actually what Paul is drawing from. He's not just a frustrated leader telling his people, I'm sick of dealing with your problems. Just drop it, okay? It's just easier. It's just quieter if everyone just stops. Try to get along. That's not what Paul's doing. He is bringing them back to the gospel. He's, he's bringing them back to the words of Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. You might want to turn there, in fact. It's a good idea to, to see this spelled out in black and white unless you have a red letter Bible, I guess, then it's red and white. Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Stop there. That's hard, isn't it? Okay, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, this is a law from Deuteronomy 19. When you read it in its context, you will realize it is a limit placed on retribution, not a prescription for retribution. If someone hits you and knocks out your tooth, do you want to knock out their tooth? No, you want to knock off their head. That's why this verse is there. It's a limit. It's a limit placed on retribution, not a prescription. Not saying, well, you have to go do it to them now. You have to. No, I don't. So Jesus corrects the thinking of this. 
Jesus corrects this with a statement that is just as hard to swallow as Paul's advice to the Corinthians. He says, in this case, do not resist an evil person. What? Certainly, Jesus, you don't mean that, but it kind of sounds like he might. Now, again, your mind will jump to the exception, to the exclusions. Jesus resists evil. That's kind of what he does, honestly. So does Paul. There will absolutely be a time to resist evil, especially in the cause of defending one who is defenseless. And, and your mind goes on to all the reasons why you don't have to actually take this seriously. And, you know, when we get to those passages like that about, you know, resisting evil, then we'll teach through them. Like we did in chapter 5, where Paul clearly resisted evil with excommunication. Right? Could you imagine the Corinthians turning this kind of idea on its head in chapter 5? You've got this couple that's sinning. They sit in front of every week, and everyone knows that there's this really icky relationship going on. But they're like, you know what? Don't resist the evil person. So we're just going to let that slide. Obviously, there are times when we resist evil. But this passage in Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, it's about not taking offenses personally and then being able to lay down your own rights for the good of the church and the good of your own soul. What does it mean to not resist an evil person? I think Jesus explains it. Verse 39 of Matthew 5. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, this is actually a lawsuit. It's talking about being sued. And Jesus says, let yourself be cheated. They're suing you for your own tunic, you're like, you know what? Let them have it. Give them more than they asked for. Give them your cloak also. That is literally what Jesus says. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. A Roman soldier had the right to detain anyone and say, carry all my stuff, but they could only do it for one mile. And then by the law, they were not allowed to compel that person anymore. And he's saying, you guys, when a Roman soldier comes and says, drop what you're doing, you're going to be late for all your appointments, walk with me a mile and carry all my stuff. You say, great, I'll take it twice as far. Do not resist the evil person. Verse 42 says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. These are the words of Jesus. Paul never wanted to be revolutionary. <laughs> he never tried to be original. He, he isn't making things up as he goes along, hoping to invent some sort of Christianity that would catch on and hopefully not be, you know, too hard on anyone. No, Paul was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and as a bondservant, he had laid down his own rights for the cause of promoting the gospel. And he has encouraged the church, follow me on this course. Paul was following the same Jesus who said, if, if anyone wants to sue you, just give him what he wants. In fact, double it. That's the Messiah who Paul was serving, and he invites the church to follow him there. Ah, this is hard, isn't it? Now, again, if you're honest and uh, you think this is uh, maybe somewhat, somewhat difficult to, to swallow, to, to fathom, uh, you're not alone. I think the church as a whole has wrestled with these and tried to come up with exceptions to these for the course of its existence. But Paul is saying, this is better for you as a church. This is better for your soul. And this is the second half of um, this text, the next part of the paragraph. It makes no sense for someone who has received so much mercy to demand for justice so loudly. <laughs> 
when he says, wouldn't you rather let yourself be cheated? He's not saying anything new. These are words that Jesus brought to the church. When he says, wouldn't you rather accept wrong? He's not inventing anything new. He's saying he's just riffing on the truth that the church should have known this whole time, which is be like Christ, who, of course, was wronged and cheated, who traded glories of heaven for a form of a bondservant. That's not a good trade. That's not justice. He traded his righteousness for your sin. That's not fair. That's not. Who, who got the short end of that deal? <laughs> he says, wouldn't you rather just let yourself be cheated? It'll be better for the church. It'll be better for your soul. And then he says in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now that seems like a shift, right? Seems like a, a kind of a shift or an accusation as if he's saying to these bad, misbehaving Christians that are going to court, like, if you keep doing this, you don't get to go to heaven. But then he lists these sins, and it's very clear in the end where he says, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. It's very clear that's not what he's saying at all. When he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists these, sin, these sins, fornicator, idolater, adulterer, homosexual, sodomite, thief, covetous, drunkard, revilers, extortioners, he says, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I'll do that list a little bit slower in a second. He says, such were some of you. So he says, if, you're, if your relationship with the other person in the church is based on this idea of a, a, a retribution or fairness and a give and take and a 50-50, he says, what about your relationship with God? How would you like it if we measured all of your stuff Again, with the same measure that you are being used. Again, Jesus said the exact same thing. So when he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he is reminding them not of what they're doing. He's not saying stop misbehaving or no heaven for you. Okay, He's saying, don't you remember what you were brought from? And do you remember what legal action took place in order for you to be where you are? It was the legal action of justification. So if you want to take things to court, if you want to take all of other people's behaviors and all their wrong against you, and you want to live your life by that sword, are you prepared to die by that sword? Again, Jesus said the same thing. So he lists these sins. Again, they have nothing to do, as far as we know, with the, the thing that these two guys were suing each other over. I mean, maybe one of them, right? Hopefully not all of them. That would be a really interesting jury to be on. Um, but he lists these sins because they would be aware this was our old life. He says, such were some of you. He's not saying this is what you're doing and stop it. He says, this is where you were. Aren't you glad you're not there anymore? So th this list here, he says, the the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God include, says, neither the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, homosexuals, or sodomites. It's interesting to note that all of these are sexual sins except idolaters in verse 9. Um, but they are all the same family of sins because Corinth, like much of the modern culture today, uh, in Corinth, sex was an idol. In fact, it was, it was a broad spectrum of idolatry. Um, he, he be sure to, to, he, he's sure to, to 
identify every individual kind of sexual sin here, fornicators. This is any kind of sex before marriage. Adultery is cheating on your spouse or cheating with someone else's spouse. Homosexuals refers to either gender. Sodomites is intentionally male, probably cult prostitutes, something that was too common in Corinth. The, uh, the sins of Corinth were not new at the time, and no sin that you encounter today is new under the sun. Uh, the church has held the same sexual ethic, essentially, since its earliest days, which is very narrow and very full. Uh, the church at this time had to deal with homosexual relationships. The church at that time had to deal with abortion and actually exposing infants to die, so a little, little worse even than what we're allowed now. Um, the church at this time in Corinth had to deal with all of these sins and more, which the church has still dealt has dealt with until now and will continue to deal with the same way that Paul did then, which is saying there are behaviors and beliefs that characterize a life outside the church and they are contrary to, opposed to, completely conflicting with a washed, sanctified, justified saint. He continues in verse 10, says thieves, nope, None of them. Or covetous. So that gets both of them. Because a thief is the one who takes and the covetous is the one who just doesn't have the courage to, but wants to. So he gets like both of those guys. Nope, still can't come in. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. This is, this, uh, is a more broad spectrum of sins. You've got thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers or scoffers. It's just people that like to stir the pot and, and have fights and insult people. It's kind of a, a, a catch-all uh, sin full of social ills. And he includes this entire list to include the entire Corinthian church and to show that, you know, the, the thief was not able to judge the adulterer at a different standard because they're all in the same basket. Um, and I should say they're all in the same hand basket heading somewhere fast. Uh, and these, these, Corinthians had all come from a variety of sinful lifestyles. And he says, such were some of you. This was your life. Now, again, he was just saying you shouldn't sue each other. The church should be wise. You should be able to deal with your own problems. But this part is to the ones who should rather accept wrong. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. We are, there is the washing of regeneration that takes place when you become saved. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he's telling them, you're clean from all this stuff. You're forgiven from all of this stuff. He's encouraging uh, two parties to forgive each other by reminding them at just how forgiven they are. Um, you think of Lady Macbeth trying to wash her hands, trying to wash the blood off her hands, and it can't be done Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He says, you are washed. You've got the stains out. All these stains of the things I just mentioned, they are no longer part of your life, no longer something that you have to be guilty for, certainly not something that you have to continue in celebrating. And he says, you were sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. So he says, not only do these actions of sins no longer you know, uh, have a hold on you, no longer identify you, but you are in a completely separate place, a, a separate spiritual location 
from these things. You're of a different spirit. Colossians 1 says that we have been transferred or conveyed. I picture the conveyor belt. You were over here, kingdom of darkness. And he says you were conveyed into the kingdom of the sun. You were over there. You, now, you are now over here. You have been sanctified and set apart. You were justified. And this is the legal term that is important to those who are thinking of suing each other in a court of law. He says you've already been to the highest court. You've already been there. If this person in your church who you're trying to sue for their whatever, they've already been to that court too. They've already been to the highest court. The judge has already passed sentence and said you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians about the Spirit of reconciliation, saying you've been given this gift where just as Christ has reconciled you to himself, you now have the, the beautiful privilege and ability of walking with people through their issues, both with God and each other, you're able to facilitate forgiveness within people. Listen to this. I'm going to read a long passage, and I'll close with this, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to give you a preview of something we'll study someday. In verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for we do not commend ourselves against, again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, in legal terminology there, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Pause again. This, was the, this is a message that the Corinthians still needed to hear. They needed to hear it in 1 Corinthians. They needed to hear it in 2 Corinthians, that we have the privilege now of no longer living for ourselves. If you're living for yourself, lawsuits make sense. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you and we love you. And we pray that we would enter into this spirit of reconciliation with joy, knowing that you have reconciled us to yourself. God, our Father, we thank you for reconciling us through your Son, for justifying us by the name of Jesus Christ and by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for what you are doing in our church. We pray that you would keep us 
pure, that we would walk in this spirit of reconciliation, in rejoicing that you have washed, sanctified, and justified the ungodly. And we are those ungodly. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in peace. You are sent. Mm -hmm.